All right, so this morning, uh, you can turn into your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at a couple verses here this morning, a really cool phrase that I think is just really profound, and uh, it occurs right here in Acts 17. But I want to start out by saying this, that I like to, I like to read a lot. I don't know if any else of you are big readers, but I happen to be a big reader. In fact, I probably read too many books at one time. I think I'm reading about six. That's probably not very efficient. Uh, so I'm trying to cut that down so I can only read about two. I think that's, I think that's reasonable. Uh, but anyways, I like to read a lot. And when you read a lot, you come across words, words you don't know, and then you learn new words and all sorts of cool stuff like that. But I think one thing that you realize, too, is that words today, they've kind of lost their meaning. They've kind of lost their luster, so to speak. That words that we used to use a long time ago, we don't use anymore, or words that mean one thing, they don't have the same, quite the same meaning today. And for like some of those words, I think of words like amazing, and words like epic, and awesome, and incredible, those just really descriptive words. I think they've kind of lost their luster because we call you know a play at the end of a football game amazing or awesome or we call some movie epic or something like that and we use them so much that they kind of have lost their meaning and we've kind of forgotten what something truly awesome is and what something truly amazing is and because have you ever really sat down and thought really thought and meditated upon how awesome your salvation is, or how amazing your redemption is, that you've been saved from sin, from the very hell itself, and now you are confident in in the Lord Jesus' grace, that now you're going to heaven. That is awesome. That is incredible. Truly incredible. It's amazing that the all-wise, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, all-holy God would manifest Himself in the person of Jesus into our frail and fragile and filthy world. That's amazing. It's incredible that He who was perfectly holy, not an ounce of sin in Him, would come into our world and live amongst sinners. He was even called the friend of sinners. That's amazing. It's remarkable even more that the creator of this whole thing, the creator of the universe, would come and live amongst His creation in order to deliver it from the very mess that they have made. We got ourselves into this mess, and yet the creator has come to deliver us out of it. That's amazing. And the truth is that this is what the gospel is all about. It's salvation given freely to we who are bona fide sinners, bona fide criminals. We've broken God's law, and yet He gives us this gospel freely. And even as we run from God, even as Adam and Eve were hiding themselves away from God the Father, He was seeking after them. You could say that when man fled, God followed, and He pursued us all the way to the cross. As man retreated from the Father, the Son gave chase, you could say. And then He gave chase all the way to the cross. The place where I want to talk about today. The place where worlds are turned upside down. You may think that's a weird phrase, but look at Acts 17. We'll get there. Acts 17, verse 1. I'm going to read down through verse... uh, We'll read down through verse 9. Now when they had passed, that is Paul and Silas, through... um, through Amphipolis, sorry, Napoleonia, they came to Thessalonica, where a synagogue of the Jews. 
And Paul, as was his manner, went, into, went unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them that believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few, but the Jews which had believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out of the people. And when they had found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken the security of Jason and of, and of the others, they let them go. So what's happening here, Paul and Silas, as you know, I don't want to rehash anything that Pastor has spoken about, but they're traveling through, they're on their missionary journey, they're traveling through, and they get to Thessalonica. And as was Paul's uh, common practice, he goes to the city primarily because it's a huge city. Paul was very deliberate on the cities he chose on his missionary journey, going to big certain metropolises and making sure that it was a, it was a great base to start a church. And this was Thessalonica. It was a big, bustling port city on this old uh, ancient trade route called the Ignatian Way. And it saw a lot of people, a lot of commerce coming through. A big, big, prominent city. One of the largest in the Roman Republic. And in fact, it was the capital of Macedonia. And as was his practice, Paul immediately went to the synagogue. As it says in verse 1, I believe, no, verse 2. And Paul, as his manner was, went unto them. He went to the synagogue and he began preaching right away. Began preaching the gospel. As it says in verse 3, he began uh, preaching Christ. That Christ must needs have suffered and risen from the dead. And so through the preaching of the gospel, he preaches there for three Sabbath days, three weeks. He's preaching them the gospel. He's preaching them Christ. Christ's salvation over and over again. And there's a great revival in the city. As it says, a great multitude believed. And of the devout Greeks, in verse 4, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude in the chief, of the chief women, not a few. Not a few, that's not a small number. It's a, a great many people believed because they heard the gospel being preached. Both Gentile men and women confessed Christ. But immediately, as these new converts were seeing a great revival, they're seeing a great work happen in their city, in their church, a great affliction comes upon them. They are immediately met with persecution and affliction. Verse 5 again, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city in an uproar. So these Jews, they're sort of jealous, they're, they're sort of envious of not only Paul and, and Silas' doctrine, they just think that their doctrine is too, it's too out there, that this guy rose from the dead and stuff like that. But also, they're, I think they're jealous of Paul and Silas' success. Paul and Silas, they come here and they start preaching the gospel, and a great many, it says, believed. So moved by this envy and moved by this jealousy, these, these disbelieving Jews I, uh, attempt to persuade these Thessalonians of just the absurdity of what they've just heard. This man rose from the dead and now we have life? What, what, is, what does that mean? And, and now they're trying to uh, 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 persuade them of that. 
It says they set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason. So they get this mob going. They, they stir up the, the multitudes. And they get this mob and they're trying to search for Paul and Silas. And they're, and they're, they're going from house to house. They go to especially the house of Jason. He's one of the leaders, the church leaders there. And they're looking for Paul and Silas and they can't find them. So they just, let's drag Jason out. Let's accuse him. So they drag Jason out. And they bring him before the Roman governors. As this was under the Roman rule, there were certain governors under each city who would make certain governmental decisions. And so these Jewish leaders, they're, they're really mad. They're really, they're really teed off. That's what's going on. And so they drag Jason before the governors and they accuse him. They accuse him of, and look at what they accuse him of. Verse 7, and when Jason hath received, or excuse me, end of verse 6. And certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. And these all do, verse 7, contrary to the decrees of Caesar. So they're accusing them of insurrection. These guys have just totally just rejected everything that we're supposed to be doing under Roman rule. They, 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 are, being, they are traitors of the Roman government. These guys are traitors. They should be treated as so. And so they bring them before... And this proves, I think, no less that Satan will do his best to trample any advancement of the gospel. As soon as the gospel is working, he's going to try and just trample that down. He's going to try and shut it down and put it down with his thumb, so to speak. He doesn't want God to get any glory. He doesn't want God to have any power in this world. He wants to make people doubt and makes people confused. And he wants to trample any movement of the Holy Spirit. And so, such he does try to do here. But despite all of Satan's efforts in causing questions in this church and causing this uproar and causing doubts to arise in these new believers, these new converts, the Thessalonian believers, the Christians, received the true gospel. If you flip over to 1 Thessalonians, this is Paul's letter. What happens later on in the chapter, you'll find that Paul keeps Timothy there, and then he and Silas go away. And then later, Paul reports back to Timothy, and then Paul eventually writes this letter, 1 Thessalonians, to these believers to encourage them because he had left really before he had done all the work that he wanted to do. And so he writes this letter in verse 7. Well, let's, uh, let's look back at verse 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in, as, in much assurance... As you know, what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. So the true gospel was received. They were true believers, and they knew what they were supposed to be believing in. And a great movement, as it says, a great movement of the Holy Ghost, and in the, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, as it says in verse 5. So a great movement came about the city, and word quickly spread of what is going on here, of the big revival that's happening in Thessalonica. It spread to, as it says, in all Macedonia, and even larger, in all Achaia. Word spread. Look at verses 8 and 9. For from you, you sounded out of the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not speak to anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how we turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So great revival happens. They return, they turn from idolatry to the true God, and a great movement of the Holy Spirit of the gospel happens 
And I just love that verse 6 again, that in much affliction, even in much affliction, they had the joy of the Holy Ghost. That's what the Gospel does, by the way. It gives you joy, not happiness. It gives you true joy in knowing that God has all things under control. And even in a situation like this where it seems that everything is going right and then everything seems to be going wrong almost immediately because these Jews were just so irate at what had happened. But why? Why were they so irate? Back in Acts 17, why were these Jews stirring up the multitude trying to get something going? Why were they trying to look for controversy, so to speak? Well, I think it's because, especially, the apostles, Paul and Silas, were preaching the gospel of the resurrected Christ. Look at verse uh, three, well, verse 2. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, and some of them believed. You know, Jesus wasn't just, wasn't just a man. He was the Christ, the Messiah, the, the God in human flesh. And this is what Paul is preaching to these Gentiles, to these Thessalonians. He's preaching them that Jesus has come and saved them from their sins. And these Jews don't like that. They're messing up the order. They're messing everything up. And by preaching this gospel, they were really, as it says in verse 6, turning the, our world upside down. You know, the Jews, and, and that, that, that indictment of these apostles, that sort of jeering, they're sort of mocking them. You're turning our world upside down. It actually is a true testament of what the gospel actually is, because it really does turn our world upside down. You can say that it capsizes our logic, and it flips all of our preconceived notions about how life should work on its head. It, one writer says it this way, it declares way to grow rich is to become poor, and that the path to honor lies through shame. To enjoy rest, we must plunge into a sea of troubles. Peace is only to be enjoyed in a state of war. Who would live must die, and who would gain must part with all that men must hold dear. That's what the gospel does. It allows you to know that even though you're going through a sea of troubles, God has everything under control, and that's where exactly where God wants you. We must remember Isaiah 55, 8-9. That God's ways are not our ways, nor are His thoughts our thoughts. And that applies to everything. When we come out of the womb, when we are born into this world, we are naturally pointed towards ourselves. We are self-salvation experts. <laughs> we are naturally pointed to ourselves. You could say the compass of our heart is pointed selfward. What the gospel does, it changes everything. It reorganizes and rearranges our compass so it points to the true north, Jesus Christ. But when we come out of the womb, we are self-justifiers. When we come out of the womb, we are just asking ourselves, what's in it for me? What do, what do I need? What can I get? How can you please me? How does this benefit me? Those are sort of the questions we ask. It's all about us. So we're seeking after ourselves and we're seeking after only what we need. We're self-righteous justifiers by birth. And so that's what the world thinks. That's what, how the world operates. It's you. It's on you. It's on your shoulders. It's on you to get things done. And the gospel comes and says, it's on Jesus He's the one who gets things done. And that's how it turns everything upside down. It puts everything on Jesus' shoulders. 
We must remember that what we view as success isn't necessarily what God deems successful. You know, where man praises wealth and power and popularity and prestige, God exalts the poor and the meek and the lowly and the humble. Matthew 5.5 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or 23.12 says, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Or Proverbs 11.2, When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. Or 1 Peter 5.5, God resisteth the proud, and giveth, giveth grace to the humble. Or James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. God exalts the humble. In God's kingdom, two small coins are worth more than the gifts of abundance. Remember that story in Mark 12? You can turn there. Mark 12, verse 41. Jesus and His disciples are in the temple that day, and they're seeing people give offerings as, they, as was their custom. And look at verse 41 of Mark chapter 12. And Jesus sat over against the treasury, and beheld how people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. Excuse me. And he called unto his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. God doesn't want just a part of your life. God wants it all. It's not enough just to have a little bit of Jesus and, and fit Jesus into your schedule. God wants all of it. You can say it this way, that God isn't just like a program that you download to your computer. He's a total, totally new operating system on your computer. Totally new. Everything has changed. He wants it all. Another thing, in God's kingdom, the religious elite must learn from the transgressor. You know, that's one thing that frustrated the Pharisees. These guys were religious, self-righteous people uh, that, got, that Jesus was it, constantly battling with, constantly having discussions and debates with. And they were always trying to seek to make Jesus stumble on His words. <laughs> but always and always, Jesus was making them stumble. Because He was always making them, pointing them, you need to learn from the sinner. Remember Luke chapter 18, when the two guys, they come into the temple to pray? One is a publican and one is a Pharisee. The Pharisee prays, look at what I'm doing, God. Look at all the times I'm fasting. Look at all the things I'm giving. Look at all the things I'm doing for you. Look at all these things. Look at me. Look at me. Look at... He's thinking about himself. And what Jesus does is he says, and then look at the back of the temple. The very back row, a publican stands and he doesn't even look up to God. He has to turn his face away. He beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then look at what he says. Well, I'll just read it for you. Verse 13 of Matthew, or excuse me, Luke 18. And the publican standing afar off would not even lift up so much his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth, humbleth himself shall be exalted. You see, the religious elite in God's kingdom must learn from the sinners. Because they too are sinners. They too are transgressors. And God's gospel, the sophisticated, must become like children. Matthew 18.1 says this, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus. 
And they said, look at this odd question that the disciples asked. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? See, they're still thinking like worldly. They're thinking that there's all these different ranks and they can say, who's the greatest? How, how can we be the, the best? How can we sit by your right hand? How, how can we be the greatest in heaven? And Jesus says this, and Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, verse 3 of Matthew 18, and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humbleth himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we must learn to have childlike faith and not think that all of our sophistications and learnings are what make us accepted. You know, also, in God's kingdom, we must wither and fall before we can bear fruit. John 20, uh, 12, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man, Jesus says, serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. So we have to learn that we have to die to ourselves before we have any sort of life. That's what Jesus is implying there. It's not about finding your life. It's about laying it down, and that's where you find life. You don't find life by living. You actually find life by dying. That's the upside-down nature of the gospel. Or 1 Corinthians 15.36, Paul says, That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. Things aren't made alive unless they die first. Also in God's kingdom, we must forsake all in order to gain everything. I'm sure you're familiar with these verses. Matthew 10:36. And a man's foes shall be, uh, be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. And he that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake or for my sake shall find it. That's what God is talking about. We have to deny ourselves, deny everything in order to have everything. Because in Jesus, everything that we could need or want is secured for us. Luke 14, verse 25. Pastor spoke on this a couple weeks ago. And there went great multitudes with him. And he turned and said unto them, And if any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is trying to get in these guys' minds is that it's upside down. It's upside down to what you naturally think. The gospel has all these things reversed. It's not about gaining and winning and having all this success. It's actually about, about losing your life. It's about realizing that it's not your life to live. It's Jesus through you. He's trying to get, in their, get that in their minds. And as I said, we have to die in order to have life. Mark 8.34 And when He had called the people unto Him with His disciples, Jesus said unto them, Whosoever will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. In order to find our life, we must lay it down first. And all this is trying to say that in God's kingdom, everything is flipped. Jesus doesn't go after all these self-righteous people. He doesn't go after all these people who think they are good. Who does He go after? He goes after the people who are sick, as it says. He goes after the outcasts, the people who know they need Jesus. 
He goes after the rebellious, as it says in uh, Luke 4. In God's kingdom, the outcasts are called, the small are chosen, and the weak are strong. Some of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. And he said unto me, that is Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You can only say that if you have believed in the gospel. Because the world naturally shuns and it shies away from, from weakness. If you show weakness, you are, you're not good enough. The world wants to get away from weakness. It wants to get away from anything that is considered meek or just weak. It, it, it praises strength. You know, we have... Have you seen those on ESPN sometimes? Those strongest man competitions? Where these guys, they lift like giant boulders on stuff and stuff like that. It's crazy. They actually are really strong guys. But that, that's sort of the mindset of the world. We praise strength. We praise people who are just totally above and beyond everyone else. And we, we have all these ranks of people. That's not how God treats us. God treats us as if we're all weak and we're all in need of the same Savior. Indeed, with God's ways and with God's thoughts, as we could say, we could say this, that we win by losing and we triumph through defeat and we achieve power through service and we come, become rich by literally giving ourselves away. That's how we succeed. Yes, the gospel, it turns our world upside down. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5 for me, really quick. I know I'm turning all these places, but I want you to see that Turning our world upside down is not something that I came up with. It's something that the Bible teaches. Look at what, what uh, Jesus is saying here. This is, of course, the Sermon on the Mount. And listen to verses 3 through about 12. And he, seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth, that is Jesus, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You listen to all those things which God calls blessed. It doesn't seem like the things that we would naturally call blessed. The poor, the mournful, the weak, the persecuted. These are the people that God goes after. These are the people that know that the gospel is for them. That know that the gospel has turned everything upside down. This gospel of grace, it doesn't follow what we would naturally reason or what we naturally think. It doesn't come after those who, as I said, think that they're righteous. It comes to those that know that they're sinful. Matthew chapter 9, verse 10, And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house... Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eat your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the gospel. It doesn't go after the, the, the healthy, it goes after the sick. And indeed, we're all sick with sin. Through the bloodshed of Christ on the cross, our eternal security was purchased. You were bought by Jesus' blood, and by dying and then resurrecting three days later, Jesus transforms what literally should be an object of, of pain and of shame into an instrument of glory. The cross. You, know, you think about the cross. It was, it was probably the most violent form of execution that ever could happen to people on this earth. They would execute them outside the city, but along the road into the city so that people passing by would see them, and they would see their shame. And such they did to Jesus, nailing Him onto the cross at Golgotha so that everyone could see, naked and bruised and beaten and bloodied and torn. And then right there, where we would think that everything is going wrong, that when internal darkness has come, Jesus succeeds. See, what Jesus does at the cross, He turns what is an emblem of shame into an emblem of glory. Because now we have the glory of the cross. He turns what is an emblem of weakness into an emblem of victory. Because their sin and death and hell were defeated forever. You see, what Jesus does is He turns this cross into what we could call a redeeming paradox. It's a conundrum. Because it is also, it is life, yet it is death. One writer says this, It is honor, yet it is shame. It is wisdom, but it is also foolishness. It is both gain and loss, both pardon and condemnation, both strength and weakness, both joy and sorrow. The cross is grace, yet it is righteousness. It is law, yet it is deliverance from law. It is Christ's humiliation, and yet it is Christ's exaltation. That's what the cross does. It's the best example of how the gospel turns our world upside down. And this doesn't really make sense to us. And I would, I would venture to say that indeed the gospel is sort of almost illogical beyond comprehension for us fully. We can understand some things about it, but the sinless one is condemned. How does that make sense? The sinless one is condemned and we the guilty are made to go free. The blessed bears the curse and then we who, and then we who are cursed bear the blessing. In the cross, the life dies and the dead live. The glory is covered with shame and the shame is covered with glory. That's the conundrum of the cross. The very idea of grace, indeed, is odd and perplexing. This world doesn't like the idea of grace. It doesn't like the idea of giving stuff to people who don't deserve it. They just want to take stuff that they don't deserve. They just want to take and take they don't like giving. They have, you should put something forward before I give you anything. That's the way of the world. It says, you have to buy my favor. You have to buy my love. You have to earn. You have to win it. It's like a trophy. It's like a reward. But God's gospel is not that way. It's not, it's not a reward that you can win. It's not a trophy that you can achieve by succeeding. It's a gift, freely given. Unmerited favor isn't natural. Unconditional love isn't the norm. You know, our world is all about earning and, and winning and achieving and deserving. The world says this, do this and you can live. But the gospel says this, believe and live. 
That's the upside-down nature of the gospel. And unlike any other religion in the world, which is what, what makes Christianity so unique, that instead of us trying to work ourselves up to God, which is a lot, what I would say, which is what all religions say, you have to do this in order to have life. You have to win your favor, win your reward. Jesus says, I will come and enter your world. The gospel shouts, come as you are, and there's no qualification to be met before you come. Just know that you're a sinner in a need of a Savior. That's all that's Grace meets the sinner on the spot where he stands, and it approaches him just as he is. That's what makes it so great. You know, our only duty in this gospel is to believe. You know, the only requirement of this good news is empty-handed faith. As it says in John 6.29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on Him whom He hath sent. That you believe. It runs, it runs contrary to how we would naturally think, because it's not about winning and achieving. At the core of the gospel lies this, an unconditional acceptance, an unmerited favor of undeserving, unholy people by an unsought, unsolicited giffer. That's a lot, that's a mouthful. But the gospel is this, the unconditional acceptance and unmerited favor of the undeserving, unholy, and unlovely by an unsolicited, unsought giver. That, 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 that kind of, that truth is only given in the gospel. Christianity is the only religion where God provides what He prescribes. God prescribes, God's law prescribes perfect holiness and God's gospel gives it to you through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus takes upon Himself our poverty to give us His riches and He laid His weakness upon Himself to get, establish us in strength. Jesus became a mortal to make us immortal and came down to earth to advance us up to heaven and became the Son of Man with us to make us the children of God. That's amazing. That's remarkable. That God would do this. You know, you want something truly epic? You can say this, that Jesus takes for His own what is rightfully ours, sin and death. And then He gives us liberally, freely, what is His and what belongs to Him that is righteousness and favor. And that's what changes people. That's what changes the world. That's what turns our world upside down. That Jesus gives what He Himself prescribes. That Jesus gives freely what should be earned through the law. And regardless of your background or your age or your condition, God is the transformer of lives. The gospel can transform your life and by turning everything upside down, indeed the gospel has turned everything right side up. By turning everything upside down to what we would naturally think, it gets turned right side up to how God's is actually were. It turns everything back to how it was before the fall, before we messed everything up. And that's the remarkable thing about the gospel. It turns our world upside down. I'll leave you this with this hymn by John Dryden. It says this, Look humbly upward and see His will disclose the forfeit first and then the fine Impose A debt thy poverty could never pay, had not eternal wisdom found the way, and celestial wealth supplied thy store. His justice makes the fine, his mercy quits the score. See God descending in the human frame, the offending suffering in the offender's name, all thy misdeeds to him imputed see, and all his righteousness devolved on thee. That's what Jesus does. 
That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel that we preach does and does for us. It transforms our world and makes everything upside down so that now everything is right side up. Let's pray this morning.